This is the waves. 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 Hello and welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and whose job it is to yell objection in a courtroom. Every episode, you get a pair of people talking about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today, you've got me, Christina Cotarucci. I'm a senior writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast, Outward. And me, Seth Stevenson. I'm another Slate senior writer, and I frequently cover courtroom trials. Seth, I've been reading your coverage of a big trial that's been going on for the past two weeks. Sarah Palin and the New York Times have been battling in court over one big question. Did the Times libel Palin in a 2017 editorial? That piece, in a kind of throwaway line, accused Palin of inciting Jared Lee Loeffner to perpetrate the mass shooting that killed six people and injured Gabby Giffords in Arizona in 2011. So, Seth, I wanted to talk to you, obviously, because you've been in the courtroom covering the trial for Slate. And I've been thinking a lot about Sarah Palin in general lately, how she's not really the main character in the news too often anymore, but I'll say the residue of her 2008 vice presidential candidacy is everywhere in politics. You know, it was a real turning point in the Republican Party. And watching Palin face off against the Times through your coverage has been a really good occasion for me to kind of take stock of what she represents, but also who she is as a person and what's sort of at the root of her appeal and her longevity in politics. But what made you want to be Slate's eyes and ears at the trial? First of all, I'm just kind of fascinated by trials in general, partly because they're these entertaining theatrical plays that get put on. And if you have a seat in the courtroom, as I often have, you're in the audience for the play and it's got drama and emotions and protagonists and antagonists. And the witnesses are like these supporting players who can be crazy characters from any walk of life. But with a trial, unlike a play, at the end, there's a ruling. And that ruling can really change someone's life for good or bad. And it can also profoundly change society since the outcome of a trial can shape laws. And so with this trial, we had all those things. We had drama and high stakes and crazy characters and possibly the future of American journalism at stake. And of course, as you noted, in the middle of it all, we've got Sarah Palin, who is this whole thing unto herself. And we're lucky enough to be recording this episode right after the trial came to a conclusion. I'm excited to talk to you about that. And we'll get into the part, if you want to call it that, that Palin played in this theater of the courtroom after the break. Waves listeners, if you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. And while you're on our feed, you can check out our other episodes, like last week's about the Olympics, which was fantastic. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. All right, Seth, to start us off, why don't you just give us a little rundown about What was at stake in this trial and where things stand now? So as you said, this starts with a 
2017 editorial in the Times, an unsigned editorial written by the Times editorial board collectively that was about a shooting in Virginia of some Republican congressmen who were practicing baseball on a field. Representative Steve Scalise was badly wounded in that shooting. And, and the day of the shooting, the Times editorial board decided they should write an opinion piece about it. And they wrote that piece. And in the course of that piece, they suggested that Sarah Palin had incited the murders that took place in the incident a few years before when Representative Gabby Giffords had been shot in 2011 in Arizona. These sentences the Times wrote, Palin, within two weeks, sued the Times over defamation for what it had written. The Times had made a mistake. Pretty much no one seems to deny that. Uh, And Palin's claim got initially rejected pretty quickly. Like a month later, a judge threw it out saying she just didn't have evidence enough to prove that the Times had libeled her. But that was appealed. Another court overruled that judge. And this went to trial, which is a very rare thing to happen in a libel case. And so uh, a couple weeks ago, we went to trial in the Southern District of New York. And Sarah Palin faced off against the New York Times. And Palin needed to prove a few things. But but the thing that was going to be, from the outset, obviously the most difficult thing for her to prove was going to be actual malice. This is the thing that arises out of the 1964 Supreme Court ruling in New York Times versus Sullivan, which says if you're a public figure, if you're an elected official or a celebrity, you can't just prove that a newspaper said something that was false about you or even that the false thing they said about you harmed you or caused you mental anguish. You need to prove that the journalistic outlet printed this false thing, even though it knew it was false uh, or that it recklessly disregarded the high probability that was false, that it intended to defame you and that it took conscious and deliberate steps to do that. So as we're recording this, just a couple of hours ago, the jury came back with its verdict and it found that the Times was not liable, that it had not libeled Sarah Palin. Um, In fact, that was a bit of a moot point because the day before the judge had said that if the jury had decided that the Times had libeled Sarah Palin, he would throw out their verdict because he felt she just did not prove it, that that no reasonable juror could possibly conclude that there was defamation here. So Sarah Palin, out of luck for now, this case will almost certainly be appealed. And there's a lot of people eyeing that New York Times versus Sullivan ruling and wondering where the line should be drawn in cases of defamation against a public figure. So this story is not over. I'm sure I'm not the only one who didn't fully realize that a judge could sort of preemptively throw out a jury's verdict. Do you happen to know how common that is? I think it's not totally uncommon. If a judge finds that the standard of evidence was simply not met, and and as I said, if a reasonable juror could not possibly conclude the standard of evidence was met, the judge can decide to to throw out the case. I think what was weird in this instance is that he did it while the jury was in the middle of deliberating. He said no jury, no reasonable jury could conclude that, but the jury was still deliberating. So what if they did conclude that? I mean, he's just sort of, it was a little bit weird. Also, there was some concern that they might see a push alert because a lot of outlets immediately reported on the fact that the judge had thrown out the case. And, you know, what if one of the jurors got a push alert that evening because they went home that night without having reached a verdict, came back the next morning. So what if they got a push alert that said, you know, Palin loses? They would say, wait a second. I thought we were <laughs> deciding that. <laughs> it's been taken out of our hands. It was, the timing was a little weird. I kind of harbor some suspicions that the judge was showboating a little bit, that he wanted to make sure everyone knew that he was calling the shots here and sure the jury can have their say, but but he wanted sort of the, the big news splash. I, I can't say that's what happened for sure, but mm, I wonder. I mean, you talked about your love of trials as a form of 
theater. And to me, that seems just incredibly theatrical, the way that all played out in such an unexpected manner. But I want to talk about Sarah Palin and the character that that she was playing. You know, anybody who is bringing a case to court has to be playing some kind of part, especially when you're trying to endear yourself to the jury. Start with, you know, what Sarah Palin wore. How did she present herself in court? She wore... I guess Sarah Palin-y stuff. She wore she wore very high-heeled boots. She often wore flared slacks. There were a few different leather jackets. The one she wore the day the judge threw out her case was a black leather jacket with this crazy sequined design emblazoned on the back like some kind of winged creature. It was a it was it was something. The days that she testified, when she actually took the witness stand uh, over the course of two days, I would say those outfits were maybe her most conservative. She wore Uh, a fuchsia-colored double-breasted blazer on the first day, and she wore a cream-colored boucle blazer on the second day. Those were like more like what you'd expect a politician to wear. The other days, you know, she was was bringing some heat. This is slightly off topic, but I recently saw a chart of some survey that was done to see what words people knew, and then to see which, which words were most common that women knew that men didn't, and which words were most common that men knew that women didn't. Because this is a gender podcast, I wanted to bring this up. Boucle was among the words that women knew that men didn't. And so I'm really extra impressed that you knew the word boucle. Hashtag not all men, Christina. <laughs> I, you know, I, I really like learning fashion terms, not just because it's interesting to me and just because I like words in general and I love learning new words, but because I'm often writing like features or these little dispatches from an event. And it's just like a really easy way to get color is to talk about what people are wearing if it, you know, if if you can sort of make a good excuse for doing that. And then when you do that, it's fun to have really precise terms. It kind of spices up the language. So I, yeah. I like to do that. You know, you you certainly weren't the only reporter to comment on what she was wearing. And I know we've talked on this podcast before about whether or not that's sort of a legitimate vein of um, criticism and analysis when we're talking about female politicians. I definitely think it is, especially because she's clearly trying to portray herself in a certain kind of way. And and even when she was first stepping out onto the national political scene, I think this her particular kind of femininity was a major part of her appeal. And it continues to be a way that she stands out because even, you know, on the right, you have that sort of classic, like, Fox News, blonde, like, tight sheath dress kind of look. And then you have what you're talking about, which is sort of the more toned down, small C, conservative look of politicians. And Sarah Palin occupies a ground pretty much unto herself among big time politicians. I mean, just to see somebody wear a sequined leather jacket in a courtroom is pretty unique. What do you think about, you know, the question of should we be analyzing people's clothes? Well, I'd hate to be told that I can never write about anyone's clothes again, first of all, because it's kind of fun and it adds color to writing, but also because I think when you look at someone and particularly a public figure, someone, you know, who's worth writing about, that's part of their vibe, that's part of what you're going to take away when you when you look at them. And it's not, this isn't something, you know, they were born with. This is a personal choice they're making. So for what it's worth, you know, it's they've made a decision to don those garments. Now, I recognize that the garments that female politicians are allowed to don or are encouraged to don or, you know, society accepts them donning are different than those of men. And so I think it's good to be aware of that. 
but especially when she's on the witness stand. And one thing that a jury is tasked with doing is assessing a witness and looking at them and trying to figure out who they are and what makes them tick and whether they should be believed and what kind of person this is. The things that a witness decides to wear when they know they're going to be up on the stand, they know that everyone's going to be looking at them and literally judging them and trying to assess their credibility and such. I think it's worth noting that stuff. So I, you know, I would hate to be told that I, that I can't, I can't write about that. How else did she try to portray herself to the jury? You know, what other kinds of personal touches or or mannerisms did she employ? Well, you know, she when you're a witness, your lawyers are kind of guiding you through. And her lawyers made sure to ask her about being a mom and about being a grandmother and how she had five kids and eight grandkids. They asked her about how small her town of Wasilla, Alaska is, and she was happy to tell them about it. And 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 she said, oh, you're missing out to the jurors when, when her lawyer suggested that maybe none of the jurors had ever visited Wasilla. She talked about how she'd grown up there since second grade. So there was a lot of that sort of, you know, make the same thing she did when she entered the political scene. You know, I'm just a hockey mom from Alaska. There was a lot of that stuff. And, and there was a real contrast there from her adversary in this trial, James Bennett, the, the New York Times, the former New York Times editor, who was every bit a New York Times editor in, in, in his vocabulary and his bearing, just like a very intense, very intellectual sounding guy. And then Sarah Palin comes on, she's all smiles, she's kind of goofy. And, and she really did show that politician's gift um, that that helped her get to where she got. Well, you know, she was able to express empathy. She was kind of charming in moments. And, I, you know, I'm not going to say she's a genius, but like she, she, you could see a sort of horse sense there where like she knew what she knew and she wasn't afraid to say it. And you could see how that could appeal to some people under certain circumstances, maybe not to me under, under those circumstances, under any circumstances, but you could, you, you could sort of see what her appeal was. And I think she was trying to use that when she was on the stand. Yeah. I mean, did, did James Bennett's lawyer ask him about his family life in his hometown? Well, you know, he, he asked him, you know, are you married? Do you have kids? And James Bennett was like, uh, yes, I'm married. We have two sons. Right. And, 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 you know, okay. Uh, great. Did it, it just didn't really humanize him, <laughs> you know, yeah, like, all right, great. Like Whereas it. Sarah Palin was like, I've got five kids. Trig is doing, you know, Trig is doing this Trig, One of them has special needs. This one's in the military. I've got eight grandkids. It's a handful, you know, all, all this stuff. So James Bennett's lawyers did make a brief foray into the idea of humanizing him, but it just, it, I don't think it got all that far. That, that's not, that's not his strong suit. It occurs to me as Sarah Palin was trying to, you know, make the jury feel for her and and to prove, you know, that she because one of the um, standards that she has to meet is that she suffered harm from the the, you know, defamatory statement. I feel like it must have been hard for her to strike a balance between proving that she suffered harm or mental anguish damages and sort of looking like a snowflake whining about nothing, which would potentially undermine her personal brand as this like, you know, tough Alaskan frontier hockey mom. Her lawyers asked her, you know, is it easy for you to complain? And she said, no, it's not. I hate complaining. You know, and they were, they, they sort of brought out this idea that she hates whiners. Right. And they talked about how she, I, I think a t-shirt or a bumper sticker she has that says, suck it up buttercup. That's like one of her key phrases. And they they asked her about that because I think they wanted to bring that up because I think they recognized 
something that I noticed, in, certainly when she was on the stand, she had trouble conveying the idea that she actually had suffered mental anguish from these two sentences that were in the New York Times. I mean, maybe she really did. Certainly the accusation was a grave, horrible accusation. I don't want to say it wasn't, but she had trouble conveying the idea that it really did hurt her you know, in her heart. She testified that she didn't really lose any sleep over it. She never had to take any medication to to help her sleep or to help with anxiety. She never consulted a therapist or a pastor. She said she went running and did hot yoga to to relieve the stress, but, oh, you know, okay. (laughs) Yeah, name someone who doesn't. Right, and just in, in her tone, in her manner, she just didn't get across the idea that she was truly wounded by what the New York Times had said. And I think that was a real problem for her with the jury. You also wrote on her first day on the stand, in the 15 minutes that she was up there, she smiled more than Bennett did in his five hours. I mean, do you think that's there was any strategic benefit to that? Or was that just Sarah Palin enjoying the spotlight and James Bennett being concerned? I think that's just who they are. I think she's a smiley person. And that's part of her charm with people. And that's what she was as a politician. And, you know, and she's, she's got a nice smile and she uses it. And, and I, I, I don't think it was even necessarily calculating, although I do think she was, you know, kind of looking at the jury and hoping to connect with them. Likewise, I think James Bennett is just not a smiley guy. You know, I think he's a, he's a, he's a very smart guy, a very, you know, ambitious guy, a very serious guy. Uh, I don't think he's a smiley guy, and maybe he is at home, but he didn't strike me as a real fun guy when he was on the stand. Um, I think that's just kind of who they are, and I think that came across. That that's kind of one of the fun thing. One of the fun things about trials when you see a witness up on the stand, you do get a sense of them. I mean, sometimes they're only up there for fifteen minutes. Sometimes they're up there for three days. Sometimes they're just like the pilot who flew the plane who saw one thing. Sometimes they're the person who was at the heart of the story. But like, however long they're up there, you get to see a slice of their life, and you get to see a little portrait of them. And the jury is is tasked with deciding: Is this a credible person? Do I believe what they say? Should I give weight to what this person is saying? So I, I mean, so they were doing that with Sarah Palin and and with James Bennett and. I'm sure Sarah Palin and James Bennett were aware of that to some degree. So I'm sure they tried to shape themselves a little bit. I'm not sure how much the outward image they gave off corresponded to what they were attempting to give off. The James Bennett role in this whole thing, or or what he should be trying to express to the jury, is that he is remorseful, right? Because, you know, he, he did correct the error the next day, or he recognized that he was wrong. He said he lost sleep. But what you've explained in your coverage is that he was really unable to show convincing remorse or warmth or, you know, even a sense of humanity in the same way that Sarah Palin does. You know, I don't want to ascribe that to like the way women and men are socialized, although, of course, there could be arguments made on that front. But I wonder, you know, obviously, we know how the case turned out at this point. But did you consider that his inability to show that kind of warmth would cost him and the times, you know, their case. Yeah. I, I really did feel like he failed to display contrition when he was on the stand. He seemed more annoyed. It was clear that he deeply regretted the mistake. It was because he had made a mistake and he hated to get something wrong and that kept him up at night and he wanted to fix it right away. And, and he did convey that what he didn't convey is an emotional 
remorse at having said what he said about Sarah Palin. He didn't convey that he'd given much thought to how it would make Sarah Palin feel to have him say this false thing about her. That did not come across. And whether or not he had those feelings, I'll speak as someone who sometimes isn't the best at, at letting their emotions come out. You know, that's not everyone's strong suit, and maybe that's not his strong suit. You know, before the, on the day he was on the stand all day, before court started, before the jury and the judge were even in the courtroom, I, I was there and I saw him pacing around in the back of the courtroom. And you just his anxiety was just palpable for good reason. He was about to go take the witness stand for hours on end and be asked brutal questions by Sarah Palin's lawyers who are going to try to catch him up and trick him and and just generally make him look like a terrible person. And so he was you know, really nervous about that. But when he got on the stand... His public self-presentation, he seemed a little bit arrogant. He seemed more annoyed than contrite. He didn't express really from his heart any remorse about what he might have done to, to, to Sarah Palin's feelings. And I wondered how much that might hurt him with, with the jury. In the end, I think just the facts of the case were going to be unovercomable for Sarah Palin, so it didn't really matter. But in a closer case, that might have been the difference. We're going to take a quick break here, but if you want to hear Seth and me talk about another topic, check out our Slate Plus segment, Is This Feminist?, where today we're going to debate whether the growing population of women paying alimony is a feminist development. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast and bonus content from shows like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash the waves plus. So, Seth, the way you wrote about Sarah Palin's time on the stand, it seemed like a little bit of a microcosm of her introduction to the national political stage that, you know, those few heady weeks in 2008, where the news was all Palin all the time. She's super charismatic and self-possessed and seems like a person on top of her game. And then it kind of takes a turn. Is that a fair explanation of what went on in the courtroom? Yes. When she first took the stand, I was like, she's doing pretty well here. You know, she's talking about her family, her kids and grandkids and her life in Wasilla. And she had that politician's gift. She was charming. When she spoke about the victims in that 2011 shooting that wounded Gabby Giffords, you know, she said the victims full names and she really expressed how she felt for the families of the victims in a way that felt real. Um, she talked about how she remembered that her daughter was the same age as the nine-year-old girl who was killed in that incident. And I, at first I was like, oh, right. I, you know, she was a successful politician. Like she, she became a mayor and then the youngest ever governor of Alaska, the first female governor of Alaska, like she had success and there's a reason why she had success. And then on the witness stand, the wheels just came off she got something wrong, like badly wrong. She got a fact badly wrong, but didn't realize she got it wrong. Her lawyers were trying to help her clean it up. The judge even tried to help her clean it up. She knew something was going awry, but she just couldn't identify what. And she fell into that thing we saw before of just the word salad, like the looping sentences, the meaningless stuff, fidgety body language, all the stuff we saw every time that she didn't know an answer or or got confused when she was on the national stage. And it was just this microcosmic replay of 
you know, she hits the scene in 2008 at the Republican National Convention. She makes the hockey mom speech. Everyone's like, holy cow, this is a new force to be reckoned with in politics. I had the privilege of living most of my life in a small town. I was just your average hockey mom and signed up for the PTA. I love those hockey moms. You know, they say the difference between a hockey mom and a pit bull, lipstick. And, and like really quickly, just the, the, the ants arrive at the picnic and, and, and that, that's That's what happened on, on the stand in the trial too. Yeah. I mean, even now I'm having deja vu from feeling like, should I be laughing at this objectively funny thing that's going on, you know, in politics? Or should I just be worried because this is somebody who clearly a lot of powerful people in the Republican Party are taking very seriously? And in this case, you know, it's the same thing because it could have turned out and and may very well still turn out that it like erodes protections for journalism. But but here we are, you know, able to kind of laugh at what happened in the courtroom. Right. I mean, she, she, uh, people have said she was really a proto Trump in a lot of ways. And one of the ways is that like, she seems like ridiculous. Like she's this caricature. These, she's this figure of ridicule. And yet <laughs> she's also incredibly dangerous if she gets power. And like, I mean, I want to be clear. Sarah Palin has like said some vile things, done some vile things, com- campaigned for Judge Roy Moore and his Alabama Senate campaign was like the most despicable person to run for Senate that I like. She's bad news. Right. But then, you you know, she's smiling. You see her in the hallway outside the courtroom and she's, you know, she's really nice to everybody. <laughs> like, and, you're, and, and like, she's kind of ridiculous, too. So you, it's like hard to take her too seriously. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the dichotomy. Yeah. Tell me what happened with this objection situation. All right. So one of the things that The New York Times wanted to show was that Sarah Palin had not actually been damaged by the, those false sentences the New York Times published, that that her reputation had not truly been harmed. And, and the way they wanted to show this was that she continued to get work afterwards. She was able to continue to campaign for other candidates. And, and she did an appearance on a few TV shows, including this primetime show, The Masked Singer, where she rapped Baby Got Back. So her lawyers in the run-up to the trial had made a motion to bar showing any video of her appearing in The Masked Singer, I think, for obvious reasons. It was going, it wouldn't have been good for her. And she, I think, wanted, thought, maybe got confused or, or hoped that there would be no mention of this appearance on The Masked Singer. Because it doesn't look great for her that The Times theoretically has damaged her reputation beyond repair, and now she's showing up on primetime television, right? So when The New York Times lawyers asked her initially... Were you on this show, The Mass Singer? She just, I think, kind of reflexively went, objection. And, and of course, you know, a witness can't object. That is not a power accorded to her. And everyone kind of chuckled. And the judge was just like, no. And and I want to say I did read another reporter's story saying that, that she like kind of quickly said, oh, I was just kidding. I was just trying to be funny. I didn't catch that. But even if she did say that, I think she was trying to cover up. I think she, it was a reflexive idea that she could stop. I mean, she just has seen a lot, maybe a lot of courtroom movies. <laughs> it was just like, there should be an objection here. I'll just go ahead and say it. I mean, honestly, there but for the grace of God go I if I'm ever on a witness stand. I too have watched too much Law & Order. 
Christina, I have thought so much in the course of covering trials about what I would be like on the witness stand and what I would wear and like what where I would go wrong, like the thing that would, you know, <laughs> how I would come across to the jury. It's impossible not to think about that when you see these people squirming up there and you're like, God, what would it be like? Because these lawyers on cross-examination are just just brutal, just brutal. And they, they can have you up there for eight days if they want to. And if you say one thing that contradicts something you said 20 years ago, they'll, they'll be like, oh, really? Hold on here. I've just got this thing you said 20 years ago. Let me read it to you. It is uncomfortable to watch. And I have thought a lot about how I hope never to be in that position. I have a lot of sympathy for her in that moment. Although it did occur to me that maybe this was you know, her way of endearing herself to the jury, making her seem like an ordinary person who just couldn't be bothered to know how someone might be expected to act in a courtroom. I don't think she's that calculating, but I do think that is part of what makes her endearing. Like she's kind of a goof. I think, you know, and when it, when she's a harmless goof or a charming goof, it works for her, but she is a goof. And I mean, I would say were I her legal counsel, the masked singer probably would have been a great bit of evidence to prove that it had damaged, that the allegation had damaged her career, because why would somebody appear on that show? It's when you you're desperate for fame. Thank this is you. what she's yeah. been reduced to. So on a more serious note, you wrote in one of your pieces that you didn't think James Bennett consciously meant to harm Sarah Palin, but you wondered was he thinking about her at all? You know, and as you mentioned, it was really hard for him to show to the jury that he he actually was sorry for possibly hurting her feelings. And you make a distinction between Sarah Palin, the symbol and Sarah Palin, the person. How did you grapple with those two sort of different entities in your mind while you were covering the trial? Yeah, so. Sarah Palin's lawyer spent a lot of time trying to demonstrate that there was bias at the New York Times. Newsflash, the New York Times is a left-leaning paper. I don't think it's going to shock anyone to learn that the editorial board of the New York Times, which is tasked with channeling the institutional voice of the New York Times, is a, is a left-leaning group of people. And that was evident in the subpoenaed emails you know, that, that showed up in, in the trial. And what Palin's lawyers tried to argue was that this bias caused them to, to want to defame Sarah Palin, to want to harm her, to consciously, deliberately avoid the truth and say terrible things about her. Now, I, you know, there's no way that the Times was intending to say something false. It was obvious that as soon as they realized they had said something false, they corrected it. But where I do think that bias maybe came into play is I think these people had no fondness for Sarah Palin, right? I don't think it would be surprising if, if we learned that they had no fondness for Sarah Palin. And I think because of that, they might, they might have been a little less careful in thinking about whether they were correct when they made a really grave accusation about her. If they'd been making that accusation about someone they were really fond of, I think they might have thought twice before they made it and maybe made really sure that they were right on the facts before they said it. I think that's possible. I'm not saying that happened, but I think that is possible. And I wondered when James Bennett was writing that really horrible thing about Sarah Palin that wasn't true, did he think about Sarah Palin, did he think, oh, I, let me think here. I'm saying that Sarah Palin did something really horrible. Did she really do that? Would she really do that? I don't think Sarah Palin, the person, entered his mind, if I had to guess. I think 
She was just Sarah Palin, the caricature. Sarah Palin, that ridiculous figure of fun who was on the national stage, who said absurd things. I don't think he was thinking about her as a person. And of course, when you're you know, writing on deadline and you're publishing a ton of editorials a day and you're writing about national figures who are caricatures to some extent, like it's hard to think about them as people all the time. But this was a good reminder for me, at least when I write about someone, even if it's someone I'm not particularly fond of, to remember that they are a person. And Sarah Palin is a person. And whether or not she conveyed a lot of mental anguish over this, like it is not fair that, you know, they accused her of inciting murder when she didn't incite murder. That's not something anyone should have to endure. So I, you know, let's let's all be careful not to make big mistakes when we accuse people of terrible things. I think that's a decent lesson to take away here. Before we head out, we have a couple recommendations for you guys. Seth, what are you into right now? So I can't really call this a recommendation, but I am I am hate watching a show right now that and I'm enjoying hate watching it. So I guess that's a recommendation if you're looking for something to hate watch. The show is um, The Morning Show. I'm watching season two of it. It's that um, Apple Plus show with Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston and Steve Carell and all these famous people. And uh, it's just not a good show. I mean, it's really not a good show. I only watched season one of that. I haven't I haven't dipped my toe into season two. Season one was kind of like a failure, but like a normal failure. It just didn't quite click. Season two is like a real, I mean, it just goes off the rails. And it's fascinating to watch because you've got big name talent here. And I assume, you know, extremely talented, very well-paid writing staff. And it just can't even get like the basics of television right. Like everything is implausible. Like just like the simple plot mechanics, they can't seem to manage. Like you just getting a character from point A to point B, they somehow have to introduce some crazy thing that makes no sense. At no point do I understand why a character feels toward another character the way they do. Like they suddenly get really angry and I'm like, wait, why, why are they angry at them? And I'll ask my wife, like, did, am I forgetting something? And my wife will be like, no, I don't know why they feel that way either. It's just, anyway, I'm enjoying watching this, this incredible flame out that you can just see the dollars burning to like, to absolutely no avail in terms of making good television. So that is my recommendation. Wow. I hope nobody ever recommends anything I've done in the manner that you just recommended that show. Um, I'm going to recommend studio portraits of pets. So I don't have a pet, but my great aunt Louise did. Uh, She passed away last year. And one of the things that I inherited of hers is a portrait, actually two portraits, two gorgeous eight by 10 sepia toned portraits of her Chihuahua Chico. Rest his soul. He died decades ago. These portraits, and I'm not sure if It's just because they were made on actual film, but there's something so serious about them. The Chihuahua is sitting on a table with a a beautiful cloth on it. Um, They've posed him beautifully. He looks so elegant. And to me, that's like the exact right amount of irony you want in home decor. Like, it's not cheesy. They are very beautiful portraits, but it's also of a Chihuahua. Um, So I'm going to recommend... I was going to say getting a studio portrait of your pet, but I actually think it's better if it's not your pet because you probably have a lot of photos of your own pet. But when you have a mystery animal, um, 
posed very seriously uh, in a studio in your home. It's it's gives your home an air of mystery, I think. And and you know, uh, thank you to Aunt Louise for uh, documenting that moment in Chico's life. I love that, and I love that it I love that it brings you joy. Rest in power, Chico. You should definitely read Seth's coverage of the Sarah Palin New York Times trial. You can find it on Slate.com, and we'll put it on the show page. All right, that's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. Shannon Paulus is our editorial director, with June Thomas providing oversight and moral support. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And please consider supporting us by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast and bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash the waves plus. We'd also love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place. 